there's times where like just God in its mercy, he gives you opportunity to, to write for different organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So I was writing for an organization um, called Lifeway, and they have this thing called the Gospel Project. We use it for our children um, back there in Canvas, but there's also this adult version of it as well, um, where it's, it's really like walking through the scriptures and essentially showing how the singular thread throughout the scriptures is Jesus and the story of the gospel. So I had an opportunity to write curriculum for adults last year. It's coming out um, in 2020. One of the cur- curriculums that that um, was working on was through the book of Nehemiah. Thank you, Tab, for that, by the way. Um, one of the book um, was the book of Nehemiah. And writing through Nehemiah was very rich for me because at the time, like, man, I, you know how you just study the Bible, but you really don't necessarily go deep into it. And so it was an opportunity to really just go deep into the story of Nehemiah um, in a new way. Um, and oftentimes when you look at the story of Nehemiah, it's really focused on leadership and, and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And there's some truth there. Um, but, but the story of Nehemiah really isn't just the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, although it's that. Um, but even the start of Nehemiah has this tension where he's like, man, our dignity is gone because the, the, the walls are, are fallen. So it's a restoration of dignity, but it's not just a restoration of dignity. It's the revival and the restoration of a people. And so it's tied to Ezra. And so what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is not just the rebuilding of a temple, but the reviving of a people and it's glorious. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that God in his mercy has allowed us to receive a, a, a massive property in Little Haiti that we hope to move into next year. And all of the stress that that brings um, was, was full on me um, I would drive and I would pray and, and you know, just walk and I'm like, man, God, oh my gosh, this is a lot to do. And, 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 and God in his mercy, he was like, hey, hey, last year you, you were riding on this. Now, now this year you get to live it. What are you going to do? And it was very humbling, humbling for me. But in, in view of that reality, it wasn't you get to live it. Let's go build this building back up to greatness because that's not the story of Nehemiah. It is not just the restoration of a place. It is the revival of a people. And so as we move further and further towards getting this place up and running, having a new home, getting a sense of permanence in this great city, it would be a shame if the primary focus of our work was just taking care of a place as if God hasn't called us to grow a people from all people to be passionate for God. Are you tracking with me? And so what, what we've said is like, man, over this, over this move towards the, the, the start of the spring and the ending of the fall, like, let us examine the things that will help us be revived as a people. The, the, the places that in, in, our, in our hearts and in our lives that, that may be a little bit sensitive, but if we press into, if we engage, we could see a level of renovation, not just around us, but inside us, dust high. I'm your inner world, that we would explore the world beneath the surface. Uh, many people speak of this world. Let me, let me run off a few quotes. Um, Edward Freeman, attitudes are the real figures of speech. I like that. Um, what he's saying is that who you are beneath the surface, your attitude, it kind of shows up in how you, you speak. It's the illustration of your life. Um, Fahim T. Payne Najim. Um, 
That's a person. He says this, um, I'm sprung. Dog, she got me. Got me doing things I'll never do. If you ain't been, I'm telling you, I'm sprung. Dog, she got me. Got me doing things I'll never do. If you ain't been, I'm telling you. Dude, you know how you can just judge what somebody listens to? That was for that. That was for I could judge all of you guys, but it also brings the point to life. Um, Charge it to my head and not my heart, said every person that's ever messed up unconsciously. My head, not what I really felt. Um, Dallas Willard, he says this, our life and how we find the world now and in the future is almost totally a simple result of what we have become in the depths of our being, in our spirit, our will, our hearts. From there, we see our world and interpret reality. From there, we make our choices, break forth in action, try to change our world. We live from our depths, most of which we do not understand. I like that a lot. He is synthesizing what we know naturally, which is there's a world inside us that at times seems unknown, but it carries a lot of weight to the world around us. And unfortunately for us, the world inside us is born broken. And so there's all of these tensions and trials and tragedies and loose ends within our soul that show up in our lives. And we need renovation. We need a revival of our hearts that shows up in our lives. Did you see that? All of this beneath the surface inner world workings shows up outside. And so you look at T-Pain and there's something happening in his heart that shows up with now I am with this person, I'm sprung, right? And then you look at Dallas Willard and, and, and he's like, man, there's this unconscious, but not in a Freudian Oedipus, like I have these sexual thoughts from my mother in a weird type of way, but this unconscious part of us that drives every aspect of our lives. Furthermore, the scriptures will articulate that every single one of us lives from our hearts. We all live from our hearts. Our hearts are the seed of our soul. The way the scriptures will talk about it is it's, it's not just your, your thoughts, it's your thoughts, it's your conscience, it's your will, and it's your emotions. All of that together creates your heart, the command center of your life. We live from it. We speak about the heart often here because we're not just after external conformity, but inward transformation, renewal of the heart, where our minds and our emotions and our conscience and our will fall in line with who God is and what God says. We need renovation. We need revival, not just one time, but regularly, because renovation of the heart equals transformation in our lives. But for most of us, if I could give us an illustration and then jump into Psalms, most of us live so unconsciously that we don't take the time to really navigate and lead our hearts well. Have you ever found yourself driving and you drive someplace where you never intended to go? So example is you're you're driving on 95. This happens with me all the time. And you're driving on 95 and then you just take exit 10B and you find yourself at some, I was like, wait a second, why am I going home? Because it's just kind of subconscious. You just kind of drive without driving. Isn't that a little scary? Have you ever thought that? It's just like muscle memory takes over, your unconscious kicks in, and you just end up somewhere. 
That's all of us. And that is the nature of our hearts, that we just kind of go. And then one day we're like, how did I get here? So what, what we want, and I'm just going to put this up, there's, there's really three things that we would hope would happen from this series. The first is that we would lead our hearts, not follow them. Now, everywhere around us, it's like, yo, you just follow your heart, what you feel you do. And we know that the, the deepest part of our hearts are our emotions. And so you could think something and know it's wrong, but if you feel it, you're going to go for it. So it's follow your hearts. And I'm like, if you follow your heart, you may end up at home. Or unconsciously, you may end up somewhere you had no intent of being in the first place. So, so at the end of this, we want to lead our hearts intentionally, not follow them, if, if that would make um, sense. The other is that for some of us who've just been kind of wandering and, you know, just the nature of the unconscious and your heart is just kind of take you everywhere and you, and you kind of know you're not where you're supposed to be, it's that you would find your way back home. That if your heart has wandered, far and you know it that you would find your way back home and when you find your way back home realize that there's a god who's been standing there the whole time saying hey welcome back i missed you and then lastly um, that we would cultivate and grow a better future by doing those things leading our hearts and finding our way back home when we wander because we're prone to wander prone to stray and so we sing that old song God, bind our wandering hearts to you. And so that we would grow a better, cultivate and grow a better future. That will come from this psalm in particularly. Um, let me read it and then um, we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. Um, psalm 1 through 6, put my little timer up here. No, probably need a bigger. Psalm 1 through 6, it reads like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff. The wind drives them away. Therefore, in light of therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. To navigate our hearts well, historically, the idea to do that or the roadmap to do that has been prayer. That prayer presents the roadmap to leading our hearts. That's, that's formation, if I could use a Christian theme. Spiritual formation happens primarily through prayer, whereby who we are on the inside comes out in our words, in our actions, in our meditations, upward towards God. So not just regular prayer, but Christian prayer. And all throughout the scriptures, while prayer has primarily been seen as a roadmap to renovation, if you will, Specifically, what you see is that the Psalms become the prayer book for the people of God. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be in the Psalms. But the reason we're starting with Psalm 1 is because if you were to just look at the Psalms, first of all, they're, they're glorious. They are a window into our hearts, our shared humanity. 
the things that we think, but we're afraid to say out loud. Yeah. Uh, the things that we feel, but we're like, man, if you knew how I felt, how would you respond to me? They are a window to the deepest parts of us, our, our inner world. They're, they're a window into our shared humanity, but they're also a window into the glory of God. That every single psalm says something majestic about who God is. Not just something about who we are, but something majestic about who God is. And so that is the psalms in general. But what's fascinating is that, that really there's, there's some themes that run through the, through the entire psalms. And they're broken down into five books. And every single book has this powerful theme where it's like even book one just being like a, a call to remembrance and a, a call to faithfulness, like return back to God. And at the end of the Psalms, book five, just being this glorious praise of who God is. And all throughout, you see lament. You see this sadness regarding what's happening in the side people, this sadness regarding of what's happening outside of the world, particularly wicked things. And you see people sad about that. And it's in there, which means that's a good response. When bad things happen to feel sad, you're not crazy, right? And, and, but what, what's fascinating is you don't just see this theme of lament. You also see this theme of praise, that there's this celebration and this thanking of God for the good things that happen in us and around us. And furthermore, if I could continue, like the beginning of Psalms, you have way more lament Psalms than at the end where you have all these praise songs, I would argue that's because like, we should eventually move from lament, this is sad, this is a tragedy, this is broken, to praise. But God is good, God will take care of it, God will bring renewal. That's the flow of the song. The songs are so, so rich. Book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. But Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really stand outside of those books. Now, you know, I'm not taking any shots to people who, you know, put these together. They put Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in book 1. That's not necessarily fair. It, it really, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really kind of frame those huge themes of the rest of the Psalms. They, they serve as introductions, if you will, to what you're going to see from Psalm 3 all the way on to Psalm 150. And so the reason we start with Psalm 1 is because if we're going to navigate our inner world well, we are going to have to press into prayer in a different way, where we are exposing our hearts, but we're engaging and encountering God. And if we're going to understand a healthy or a great pathway into prayer, then we have to start with Psalm 1. Some, some would argue, I think Tim Keller says it, that there's a part of this, uh, a verse Two, if you will, that becomes the key to great prayer. We're going to get there. But the movement of the text in our time is this psalm presents a picture that's worth experiencing. It also, through this picture, presents a, a problem that we must overcome. And then it gives us a pattern that's worth following. So that's going to be the rest of our time. I just wanted to frame that for us, that it's a picture worth experiencing, a problem we must overcome at a pattern worth following. Here's a picture worth experiencing. It's all throughout there. Did you read it? Blessed is the man. So it starts off as blessing, which also means when you start thinking about the rest of the Psalms, there, there are these 
prayers for, for blessing, these responses of blessing, these seekers of blessings, blessings aren't bad. I will scream that until I can't scream anymore. They're not bad at all. But like we said a few weeks ago, and what this psalm will articulate is that blessing is tied to relationship. You want to measure the extent of a blessing, you have to measure the extent of the one who's given it and how we're related to him. Blessing is tied to relationship. So it is this glorious picture of blessing. Blessed is the man, and then he starts to paint this picture through negative means, who doesn't do a few things. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners and he doesn't seat, sit in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is a man who is not in deep relationship with the things that will draw him away from the one who blesses him. It's not, don't associate with, you can't read that. Not when you have titles and like nomenclature for Jesus as Jesus friend of sinners. So it's not be Amish, like we're just going to like disappear from people. But it's like, no, like my deep relationships aren't with people like that. That is hard truth. Let me just go ahead and say that. But if your deep relationships are with these people, you are actually cutting yourself off from great blessing. It's this glorious picture. So he paints this picture by way of negation. Blessed is the man or woman it's gender neutral, but not in that sense. Blessed is a man or woman who doesn't do certain things. He experiences or she experiences this, though. Verse 3, planted like a tree by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. That's a huge picture. Notice the image. It says that, this blessed, relationally bound person, not only do they not do certain things, they're going to do some other things. We're going to get there. But they're planted. They're planted by streams of water and, and they yield fruit in season. The image here is this. They are planted so much so that no matter what circumstances happen, they're still yielding fruit. All right. By being planted by a stream of water, it means that whether it rains or it doesn't rain, you still have a source of life. Are you, are you tracking with the image that this has given us? It means that this tree is not dependent on the weather. It's not dependent on circumstances. You put these pictures together and what you get is that the picture that is painting for us which is worth experiencing, is a great life beyond circumstances. That, that, is Psalm, that is the Psalm 1 essence, that there is this great life beyond circumstances to be experienced. And then you see the rest of the Psalms, how people are wrestling throughout the myriad of circumstances in life. High highs, low lows, somewhere in between, but having the sense of going back to blessing, the blessing being relationship, relationship beyond circumstances. It is a picture worth experiencing. But implicit to this picture is a problem. It's a problem we have to overcome. Way of the sinners, of the wicked, of the scoffers, 
Then you get back to the end and there's this wicked dynamic again. And, and, and when you see wickedness specifically traced throughout the Psalms, it's not just bad activity. Like you go to like the Texas State Fair and you see this kid with cotton candy and you take it from him. You're like, oh, that's wicked. Well, yeah. But that's not the sum total of wickedness throughout the scriptures. It's not just the activity. It's the relationship again. And so he's like, there's this, there's this tension and this problem, which is in and of ourselves, we're wicked because we are apart from healthy relationship with God. No relationship. So there's an enemy within us, our hearts, but there's also an enemy against us, Satan. You can't read this and not think of the enemy. And the reason I say that is because of that last part where it says this. He said, the wicked are not so. They're not like this person that's planted, experiencing greater life beyond circumstances, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So chaff is the byproduct of the threshing, winnowing process. So this was an agricultural culture, um, the people of God, the people of Israel of old. So they would have understood this imagery if I could help bring some color here. Like, and so, so when you, when you want to get wheat and you want to beat down this wheat grain, what you would do is you would, you would get this huge ball of wheat, you would take it to like this floor, the threshing floor, and then you would just beat it. <laughs> you just hit it. And what, as you hit it, like the, the grain or the husk, they, were, they start to separate. You have this weighty thing that you could eat. And then you have this weightless thing called chaff. And then you would, you would throw up this blanket of all of this in the air. And then the wind would just blow the chaff away. It would just disappear. It would be gone because there's no, there's no weight to it. Does that help? Does that imagery make sense? That, that's why you see certain passages in the scripture that are they're pretty jarring. Like, you know, Judges with Gideon, where he's threshing essentially in a cave. And But if you want to thresh, you need to be on a hill because you need to win. But he's threshing in a cave because he's hiding. Yet this angel of the Lord comes to him and is like, mighty man of valor, you who, who are hiding, you coward. Which is a very fascinating thing because God calls us how he intends to make us, not just how we are. It's a different sermon. But that's, that's the image of threshing and the image of chaff. What, there's another image that comes to mind whenever I read this, which is why I said there's an enemy against us. And it's found in Luke 22. And in Luke 22, Jesus is at the end of his life. He's getting ready to be betrayed and then sentenced to die. And he tells his disciples, his friends, his, those who have been walking with him for three and a half years what's getting ready to happen. And, and one of his friends, Peter, is like, Jesus. None of us are going to really betray you, and it's definitely not going to be me. That's Peter in a nutshell, brash, bold Peter. And Jesus says to Peter, straight face, he's like, yo, Satan wants you. He demanded to have you, that he would sift you like wheat. In other words, Satan wants you so that he could take your life put it in his hands, and he could thresh you to the point where that's all that's left of you is chaff. There's no weight to you. Just easily blown away. There's an enemy within us, and there's an enemy against us. And when we see this, the enemy against us is the one who wants to keep us living wickedly. Not just doing bad things. That's easy. That's just morality. And you could be moral and still go to hell, okay? So it's not just doing bad things, but not having relationship with God. 
This is 2 Corinthians, that the God of this age has blinded the hearts and minds of people so they don't see the beauty of the gospel. They don't see the the scope of who Jesus is and how much he loves and the, the lengths that he's gone through for people. They don't see that. God says they don't see it because there's a real active enemy that keeps people blind, obscures the greatness of who God is. Enemies are not just against us. It's the enemy within us. This is the scriptures. This is our hearts. Our hearts are not inclined towards great, glorious, good things. We are not born inherently good. We are born in the image of God. And there's, there's goodness in us. But the inner workings of our hearts, we know who we really are. Romans says that we suppress the truth that we know. It means that we don't feign ignorance. We are ignorant and we're ignoring. We, we take truth and we say, I don't want that truth. I do not want to conform to it because it will not lead me where I really want. We suppress actively. We don't naturally seek out the things that bring us life on God's terms. We seek out the things that bring us life as we see it. It's our unconscious world. James brings this out. He says, what causes, this is James 4.1, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you other than the passions at war with inside of you that, that you want but you can't have so you kill? You covet but don't get it so you're jealous and you lie about this. This is humanity, guys. That the heart of humans apart from God, is actually black and cold and nasty and dirty and scary. Every parent says amen. Man, the things that come out of my, I'm like, why are you a bully? Who taught you that? None of us are bullies in our family. But where did you get? Ah, there's something inside you that just wants to rule over other people. That will objectify other people when they don't give you what you want. And I love you. You're the cutest sinner I've ever met in my life. I mean, it's, but you're a sinner nonetheless because you're apart from God. There's something in us, an enemy. But if I would build this out just a little bit more, then I'm going to move to the pattern because I think the pattern is glorious and we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time there before we close. You look at the Psalms and how they progress you got you get to Psalms like Psalm 73, and and Psalm 73, it has the great nevertheless. And it talks about the 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 the, the man who 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 is looking at the life of the wicked, those who don't have a relationship with God. And and he's like, Man, yeah, like they got it easy. <laughs> like they go about like they're 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 never hungry, they're always fed, like they're they're good with their eyes. and he's like, Man, they just have the life. And, and there is something alluring about life like that. Can I, can I maybe give us a summary of, of, of what I believe life like that is and why the enemy uses it? Fumbled my words there. You take Genesis chapter 3, and you see the enemy coming to Adam and Eve, and he's speaking, and, and he's very subtle with his lies. Did God really say, right? And, and, and after this, did God really say progression? You're like, no, man, like, like 
Like God is actually withholding something from you. He, he knows that if you eat of this tree, that, that you'll be just like him, even better. And the, 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 the longer I live, the more I read the Bible, the more I pastor, the more I just engage as a father, the more I see, man, the allure is to have the blessings of God apart from God himself. Like that is really the allure. It, it is the path of least resistance that produces maximum pleasure with minimum pain. And if you could give me life like that, I will sign up for it 10 times out of 10. Give me the crown without the cross. I want it. Yet, that is not the pathway that God takes his people through. The pathway that God takes his people through is one where it's ultimate pleasure, ever-increasing pleasure, and purposeful pain that will eventually end. But you put purposeful pain that eventually end side by side with minimal pain, which one are you going to take? Minimal pain. That, you're, it doesn't make, that's all of us. We're wired towards that. And so the only way that we're able to get out of that is actually by the pattern that is here. So, so verse two like, is, is, is rich. It says, it says this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. And so so you have this picture of greater life that is, that is, that is flourishing. It's, it's life beyond circumstances. You have this, this problem, which is this real tension to look for that life, but to look for it apart from God. And this real enemy who will come for us and promise us the promises of God apart from him. And he knows how to prey on us. And he knows how to go after us. And he wants us to be like chaff where we're just blown away. And that's our ultimate end where we're separated from God. He wants that for us. You have that real problem. But then you have this pattern of this man in the midst of all of that. It's a pattern where, where he, he is delighting in the law of the Lord and he is meditating on the law of the Lord. It is this powerful devotion, if you will, and it's constant intake and dwelling. And the center of it is the law of the Lord. Guys, this is weird. This is weird. The, the law of the Lord, there's two ways to look at it. You can look at it as primarily in this time, just the first five books of the Bible, right? The Torah. Or you could just look at it all as God's instructions. Both are in play here. It's, it's really the whole counsel of God. And what he's saying is, I want the whole counsel of God to dictate my life. I want God to tell me what to do. Um, let me give you an illustration that may bring this out. So, so last week, um, you know, I mentioned something about Black Panther. And it was one of those things where it was like, man, you know, Black Panther was a cultural phenomenon, right? It was like, oh, man, like, like Afrofuturistic, and it was celebratory. But might I say, my quote a friend, that the road to Wakanda goes through Zamunda. And so if, if you have celebrated Black Panther, praise God for you, but that celebration is diminished if you haven't seen Coming to America. Now, in Coming to America, I just, I'm talking about some of you, like, Coming to America, what movie is that? Eddie Murphy in his prime. Now, Coming to America, there's this one scene with Hakeem, Prince of Zamunda. 
And as he's there, he's supposed to get, you know, a wife. And this is before he goes to New York to show his royal oaths. Like, and th- like his, his dad brings this one girl in there who's supposed to be his betrothed, right? You, you know where I'm going, right? And, and, and he's like, so you're going to do whatever I say? And, and she's like, yes. And he's like, bark like right? And she's like, roof, roof. And he's like, like a big dog. And he's like, hop on one leg. And so she's hopping you know, and barking like a dog. And it was this interesting scene, but essentially... She was literally saying, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. And that actually turned him off a little bit. He was like, I want you to kind of have your own mind. And I get that. And so this illustration, you know, doesn't go all the way there. But let me pull out the part that matters for us. There's a type of response to authority that is actually unhealthy. Her response to the authority of this prince, we get that. That was good, but it was incomplete. It was essentially, you tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. That is a recognizing that somebody has more authority over them. Not bad, but incomplete. That's actually not what this verse is getting at. It's saying that his delight is in the law of the Lord. So it is not just a recognizing of authority. It's also a recognizing and a cherishing of beauty. So it's not just, Prince, tell me what to do. It's actually that I know this prince. I haven't just been brought into this prince's court randomly, but I've watched him. I've seen him. I've seen his words. So it's tell me what to do because I don't just recognize that you're going to be the future king of Zamunda, but I know you as a good king. You tracking with me. And what he's saying is this blessed man that is planted to flourish, sees the law of God like that as something that produces authority and something that is full of beauty. But he's not just saying that he sees the law of God like that, the whole counsel of God like that. It's saying that he sees the law giver like that, that it is a law giver and the law that has authority and beauty. And so to delight in the law of God is to recognize the authority and beauty of the law and the lawgiver. And he said, that man is blessed. That man who has that level of devotion in his heart, affections, intention and action towards the law of God, the word of God, and the one who gives it is blessed. And then he says, not only does he delight in it so much so, he meditates on it. So you look at meditation, like like most of the way we talk about meditation is really like an emptying of mind, right? So it's like empty yourself. So whether you're, you're getting ready to do yoga, which is, which is great, you turn on the music and you just want to empty your mind of all of these thoughts. That ain't biblical meditation. Biblical meditation isn't an emptying, it's a filling. And so it's not an emptying of of your your mind it's a feeling of your mind with truth and because your mind is part of your heart it's filling your heart so biblical meditation isn't just emptying your mind it's actually filling your heart what are you filling your heart of god this the law of the lord so meditation is filling your heart with who god is and what god says it says that man is blessed whose whole entire life day and night is consumed with who god is and what god says Is that not difficult? Does that actually define us? 
But he's saying that if, if that does define you, that means there's something happening in your heart. You are bringing it into submission to who God is. And there should be something happening in your life. What's happening in your life? You're bearing fruit in its season. You're flourishing. You're well. I like it a lot. Here's why, again, we start with Psalm 1. Keller said it. The scriptures articulate it. This level of delight and meditation really becomes the gateway to actually praying. Because most of us, if we're honest, we don't pray well because we don't know God's word. And so our prayers default to the same thing and it becomes rambling almost. And it doesn't really transform us. It's almost like magical incantations that we just keep going back to, but not conversation with the king of heaven. And so most prayer should be shaped by relationship. Should be shaped by the word of God, whereby who God is, is dictating how we commune with him. Some implications of this text, and then some ways I think it should lead us to pray to close. Um, I think the biggest implication that's been just wrecking me, and I would say it to you guys, is the health and growth of a thing is determined by its internal roots, not its external appearance. And the reason why that's been rocking me is because I've, I've been looking at like verse like three and I'm like, man, like there's this tree that's, 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 that's given up great leaves and it's bearing much fruit. And by the way, fruit isn't just for the person who's bearing it. So other people can enjoy it. So this should actually move people outward, you know? Um, but how can you tell the difference? Right? Like, so like if you look at two trees standing side by side, they may look good, but how can you tell the trip? What's, what's is actually healthy and what's growing? If they externally look the same. And the only real way to tell the difference is the roots. Right? In the, in the, in the place where we're going, there's this glorious oak tree in the backyard. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's massive. And the, the leaves are great. It provides a lot of great shade. But if we cut that bad boy out and we put it in, we just stuck, stuck it here. And then we kind of did all this extra foliage around the bottom so you didn't see the roots. You'd be like, oh, that's a good tree. But it'd be dead. And so, so the health and growth of something is not determined by external experiences. It's determined by its internal roots. Where do the roots actually go? Which leads me to the second implication I've been wrestling with. Roots are revealed in drought. It is often in the midst of drought that roots actually become revealed. Where you're like, oh, okay, that's how I know that thing is dead. Because it's not planted its roots don't go down into the streams of living water. So it's dependent on the rain and the circumstances. And when the rain doesn't come, it ain't good. And might I say that may be some of us spiritually. That the reason we are where we are right now is because our roots actually never went down into God. But they were, we were surrounded by people who were excited about God. So we thought we were excited about God. 
We didn't do Psalm 1, the beginning of it. We actually didn't hang with the scoffers or the sinners. But we grew up in this Haitian or this Dominican or this Cuban church, and everybody loved Jesus there, right? And we were always all great. And then life happened. And you're just like, what just happened? You tracking with me? Maybe our roots are so deep. We actually didn't know God. And that's why we are where we are. And God in his mercy is revealing that through drought so that our roots could go deep into the real thing. That's grace. We get grace. So those are some implications. The last implication is hard work is hard work. And this is hard stuff. Like to just like to say, I am going to meditate. I'm going to be mastered, dominated, bullied by the word of God. Where when we disagree, when me and God disagree, I'm going to say, I don't get it. Bah, you have your way. Yo, that's hard. We don't fight like that. We don't fight like that with people. Even the most passive person will be like, all right, have your way. But inside, you're like, nah, dude. You know what I mean? I'm going to do it, but I ain't going to like it. You know what I mean? And it's like, and it's like, no, no. Like, no, he's like, no. To, to meditate on the word of God, to delight in the word of God is not like this passive aggression. It's God is saying, hey, this is the way we're going. And you're saying, okay. I'm not coming kicking and screaming. I'm coming kicking and screaming with joy because I trust you. Do you know that every single relationship in the world is rooted in trust? And you make choices based on trust. So even if you don't see or understand fully because there's a relationship there, you'll still choose to trust. Roots need to go deep. All right. Leads us to prayer. And this is how we close. I actually want us to practice this, and then I'm going to close in prayer. It's a common pathway to prayer. It's, it's the acts model of prayer. It's adoration. It's confession. It's thanksgiving. It's supplication. But when you, when you look at meditation on the word of God being the thing that drives us to deeper prayer, meaning it's the thing that helps us to navigate our inner worlds, which means it's the thing that actually renovates our inner worlds, which means it's the thing that brings transformation to our lives, we have to start by saying, all right, God, who are you? And if we allow meditation on the word of God to drive us to prayer, we'll take different texts, different scriptures, we'll bring out truth of who God is. And here's what we do. Take Psalm 1, for example. Is there a truth regarding God in this passage that is worth celebrating? I will adore him. And then we take here, and then, and then you take that same passage. Is there something in here that I need to confess regarding that I'm not fully following? Man, you know what, God? Actually, my closest circle doesn't really know you. And I'm not even praying for them. So I can't, I can't lie and say I'm hanging with them because I'm trying to lead them to Jesus. That's a, you know how we do that? Like, I can't even say that. So actually, God, I'm actually walking in the counsel of the wicked. My thoughts aren't being shaped by you in your way. They're being shaped by people who, who want your promises apart from you. The good life, maximum pleasure, no pain. And God, I, I just confess that that's wrong. I confess that I'm finding myself actually not wanting you, just wanting the things that you could have. Is there something that we confess? Is there something to thank God for? God, thank you, verse 6, that you know the ways of the righteous. 
The ways of the righteous, because uh, wickedness isn't just actions. Righteousness isn't just actions. Both are measured by relationship. How does somebody become righteous? Because the righteous one died. This is 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf, that Jesus would die for us and instead of us so that in him we could be the righteousness of God, that God could treat treat us the right way and relate to us with kindness and grace as a loving father. And here this knows the way means the one our hearts really long for actually wants us back. You know those romantic comedies where it's usually that person who's like, Man, I want you, but they don't really like you because you don't look a certain way. And so you try to dress up to kind of be attractive and then they'll come and get you. Saying like that. It's like, man, I see you who you are fully and I want you still. God, thank you that you know the way of the righteous. That you want to know me, not just informationally, but relationally. And then the last would be supplication. It's prayer. It's petition. It's asking God for stuff. God, I, I want to flourish Help my roots go deeper. I'm not currently experiencing this, so drive my roots deeper. God, I do want the fullness of blessing, which is relationship, and it, and it shows up with the expressions of relationship like peace, like provision. God, I need that. God, would you, would you give me a better job? Because my job, that's fair. And so can we take the next moments and can we use Psalm 1 to do this? Right now, you do this wherever you want, wherever you are. You use someone. What is something that you could praise God for, you could adore him for? What is something that you may need to confess? How can you thank him? And what can you ask him to do? You do that, and then we'll pray and be dismissed.